Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today we're going to be summing up the past couple episodes' discussions on work and class. Now, I just want to orient us before we begin and just make clear what the stakes of this are. I think that the history of work is about one of the most important things that we're going to be talking about on this entire podcast. I think it's important because along with the ubiquity of international commodities, it probably has the biggest mark on our lives today. It's the, one of the biggest, most recognizable inheritances of modernity. Think about it. Most every single one of us, besides the super poor and the super rich, have our days dominated by work. And what's more, a particular kind of work. Most of us go to a particular place to work, an office, a university, a restaurant, a garage, and we go there for a particular set period of time, nine to five, or whenever the uh, role in the office tells us to go. And once we're there, our actions are governed by the incentives of the organization that is employing us. We don't act for ourselves, we act as agents of large organizations. When I worked in a supermarket, I didn't do the stuff that Brendan Mackey did. For a period of five or six hours, I did the stuff that Kowalski's supermarket wanted me to do. In exchange for the selling of our time, we get money. And usually this money is by a wage or by a salary. Furthermore, work is an incredibly important part of our identities. When you meet somebody at a party, you often ask them in the first like dozen or so questions after you say, have you watched the latest Rick and Morty? Wait, is Rick and Morty out? No, it's not. I meant the last episode. You ask them what they do for a living. And that's important because it tells you a lot about what the person values, what the person is good at, what they are in terms of class. You know, if you're talking with to a market researcher with a fashion watch that they might like a particular set of things that a grad student with a hemp bracelet would not like, right? So work in a very major way forms our identities. And I want to make the argument today that this world of work that I just described, this modern world of work, started, of course, in the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, in doing this, I'm a little bit nervous because there's an old story, like 50 years old, that basically says the Industrial Revolution happened, it changed the way that everybody worked, it pushed people into factories and into the market, it pushed people away from the countryside and into the city, and in doing so, it created new identities based around work, class consciousness, the rise of the working class, all of this stuff. And while incredibly influential 50 years ago, the past 50 years have been spent in historians slowly and then quickly chiseling away at each part of this edifice. We now know that almost none of that story is exactly true, but it's still mostly true. It still gives a good caricature of what's happening. So my difficulty in telling what's happening from the 18th to 19th centuries is to retain the good sense of what's happening there, retain the good story, but ditch all of the inaccurate stuff that was connected to it. We'll see if I can do it. 
So one of the big changes is in time. People work more. They have fewer days off. They have fewer breaks. And because they're making stuff for a bigger market, the work that they're doing is more regular. They're no longer just participating in a local trade that can have ups and downs, but they're experiencing a regional or national or even international series of uh, buying and selling. And that evens out the seasonal ups and downs of work. Also, people, especially after the factory acts in the 1830, are working harder. They're going into work and they're doing more effort per hour than they were doing before. Connected to this temporal concentration of work, there's also a spatial concentration of work. People are now going into particular places that are devoted to the kinds of work that they do. Whereas in the 18th century, you might get people making stuff in the home. In the 19th century, you have people making stuff in a factory. Of course, this is one of those big places where caricature sets in because it's uneven on both ends. In the 18th century, there's plenty of people who go to a particular place to work. Uh, tailors go to tailor shops to go sew. Potters go to potteries. Uh, artisan trades are especially places uh, that are temp uh, spatially distinct from other kinds of trades. And similarly, in the 19th century, there is a whole group of people who are doing home industry. Professionals like doctors and lawyers, especially when they live close to the places where other doctors and lawyers live, don't exactly need to go to a hospital or to a law office to do their work. They can go to a separate room. Similarly, there's a robust home industry, uh, which basically continues the old 18th century putting out system in the sweated industries like garment sewing. So this spatial concentration of work is uneven, as it is today. There is also the development of specialization in work. People focus more on one particular thing. In the early 18th century, people might be far less specialized. They might, uh, during the summertime, go and help out with taking in the crops, taking in the grain and the corn. But in the winter, they might do what we would consider proto-industrial production at home. They might spin or sew or make reed hats. They also might at the same time do uh, something like make beer and sell it on the side, take in lodgers, teach people. There was much more of a mishmash of work. But increasingly in the 19th century, people themselves become specialized. People get one trade that they do and that trade becomes their staple of work. It's the thing that they need to do every single day to make money. Weavers do mostly weaving. Spinners do mostly spinning. Lawyers do mostly lawyering. Farmers do mostly farming. And this can lead to immiseration. Uh, skilled trades through this process of specialization were split up and made into unskilled trades. It also leads to boredom. I mean, the big idea that we get when we think of a factory is boredom. Factory work is probably one of the least rewarding kinds of work that one can do. Uh, but it also leads to greater efficiency. This is the whole big idea of the division of labor that has uh, enraptured so many economists and sociologists. When you split work up, it becomes much faster. 
which means that the things that these people made became cheaper and more plentiful, which kind of benefited everybody. And thus we get the whole debate about whether this immiseration and boredom and factory work was better overall. We're not going to deal with that because it's like a morass. Now I want to talk about something that uh, those great historians of 50 years ago kind of ignored, and that is gender. Because it's clear that as these new ways of working were changing the ways that people worked, they were also changing the pe ways that people thought of being men and women. So one of the big things that's happening during this time period is that women's work outside the home was becoming degraded. In this rising model of the breadwinner homemaker household, women who needed to go and work outside the home were oddities, or they had to do it when things went wrong, or the work that they were doing was only supplemental to what should be the leading male wage. And so the work that women did was often underpaid in comparison with male work. Now, there's different explanations for this. I mentioned before that Burnett suggests that this is not as much to do with ideology and more to do with the efficiency of labor, that women were less strong and had to take more time off and so were less competitive in the labor market. And this greater immiseration of women's work is also due to the fact that work that had been gendered female was becoming more mechanized. Not because mechanization itself had an anti-woman agenda, but because the things that women did were high-skilled, highly accurate hand processes that were perfect for machines. Things like lace making and weaving, things that were repetitive and required intense concentration and accuracy, things that today we might say machines should do. Similarly, as women went into the home, their work there became invisible. It became less of work and more is just a thing that women did naturally. A big moment of this is the changing nature of the servant. Servants were always big in what we might call middle and upper class households. Most households who had a servant, remember, would only have one. And this servant might be a woman, usually was. 80% of households with one servant had a female servant. But over the 18th and 19th centuries, these servants' work became more specialized. In the early 18th century, a servant might help out with household labor and help out with the sort of proto-industrial activities that went on inside the house. Apprentices are a great example of this. A male apprentice who's going off to, say, a goldsmith to learn goldsmithing would also do the work that we might associate with a female domestic servant, in addition to learning the ropes of the trade and learning how to keep books and doing all those other great middle-class things. They would also clean up the floors, take out the poop, get water, help with the cooking, all of that sort of stuff. Consider it like the uh, fact that today interns learn how to send emails and how to be baristas. But in the 19th century, servants, particularly female domestic servants, were working only within the home. They were only keeping up the cleanliness and tidiness and the uh, social reproduction of the domestic unit. They were cooking and cleaning and taking care of the baby and sewing and mending and 
doing all that sort of stuff, but they weren't helping out with industry. And this meant that the work of female servants was not considered work. It was considered like a luxury, like a song floating through the air or something. And consider this, that even though domestic service was the single biggest category of female employment, and if you take into account things like charring, which is basically like day cleaning services, and laundry, then most women who had employment were doing something in richer people's homes, it's really weird that there was no great panic about servants in the 19th century. There was no commissions into their well-being, like there are commissions into factories. There's no unions of servants getting together like there are unions. There's no protests like there are of handloom weavers who lose out when uh, weaving becomes mechanized. And so this changing nature of gendered work plays in to the creation of gendered identities through work. Men increasingly became defined by the work that they did outside of the home where they made money and took care of their families. This became a political issue when working class people said, look, we are not able to be members of the political community because we are not able to take care of our families. To actually be Englishmen, we need to be able to get a wage that can allow us to have our wives and children at home and outside of the workforce. Similarly, the idea of what a good woman was, was defined by work or its absence. The woman's job was to keep up the house, not just to sit on a couch and play piano and look pretty, but to do all those things about making the house a clean, tidy, ordered refuge from the messy and often immoral world. Doing the shopping, commanding the servants, making sure that food is on the table, keeping up social appearances, educating children, and giving a kind of Christian culture to the home. Now, after 1830, this changes again. There's increasing barriers to certain kinds of people working. First children, then women, and then increasingly people who are not within a union. And at this, there's a reduction in working hours although there might also be an increase in the intensity. However, there's also a strange phenomenon that I haven't discussed a lot because I can't square it. As working class people worked less, middle class professional salaried people started to work more. It's in the late 19th century that you get people who are working as doctors and lawyers and journalists and writers and civil servants complaining about stress and brain drain, much like we complain about stress today. In fact, it was blamed on quite a few young professionals' deaths that they were just working themselves to death. Finally, this world of work that we're discussing is happening in an increasingly large geographic scale. Inputs in how people are making things are coming from further afield. Great example of this is the textile industry. Cotton textiles are huge in Britain, but no cotton is grown in Britain. To do all the work of Lancashire, to do all the work of the North, to make all of these woolen goods that change the world, that push people into factories, British factory owners need to buy stuff from overseas. Similarly, these goods are going everywhere. 
these same manufactured goods are not just being marketed towards people in Lancashire, or even people in England, or even people in Britain. They are going all around the world. There is an increasing global market for things. And finally, the money that people are making, because people are getting increasingly paid in money, which is a development that should have been a main development that I talk about. The money that people are making is being used to buy other global commodities. So when working class people got their wages, they didn't just spend it on meat that was grown down the road. They were spending it on grain that was increasingly after the repeal of the corn laws coming in from places like Eastern Europe. They were spending it on coffee and tea, which as we know are from the British colonies. They were also spending it on fine manufactured goods that were coming from places like China. So if I can boil down all of these changes to you, it's going to be one big thing, an even disruption. These changes of what we might want to call capitalism or modernity or whatever you want to call it, industrialization, they changed the way that almost every single person worked drastically. But these changes were not unified. This disruption caused people, especially in the early years of the change, a lot of consternation. I'm going to quote the bard, Bob Dylan, something is happening and you don't know what it is. This is the early 19th century. There's confusion about this fundamental structural change to the world of work and consumption. A confusion that frankly continues to this day. We're still arguing about it. In the old days, I would tell the story of class to make sense of this. The common experience of this new world of work, the immiseration, the exploitation, the domination of factories, the boredom and the dirt and the disease, all of this made working people understand that they were working people. They saw their own condition and saw that it was the same as other people's condition and then made the leap to think we're a class. There's a group of us, the working class, we're all in it together. And additionally, that they were destined to do battle with their exploiters, who were also a class, who were also unified, the bourgeois. That's the old story, though. Now our understandings are much more complicated. I think that they're so complicated that I'm having a lot of trouble even uh, summing them up. There's been a lot of talk about how uh, uh, class is based on language, on the way that people talk about their experience. There's uh, uh, the constant search for false consciousness, this problem that people who are immiserated, these workers who we expect would uh, support the kind of radical causes and politics that good Berkeley hippies like me would support end up voting conservative. But rather than wade into that, I'm just going to sum up one scholar's view on what's happening. And this is a, a, a guy named David Canadine, and he argues that there's basically not the story of rising class consciousness in the 18th and 19th centuries. But what's happening is that older models of hierarchy are being expressed in new language and being emphasized politically in new ways at different times. So for Canadian, the big point is that there's three ways of looking at inequality at explaining why some people are on the top and some people are on the bottom. The first is hierarchy. 
And this is that every single individual is kind of arranged in a great chain of being from very top, where you get the king, down through the nobles, and down through the middle classes, and down very, very bottom to the paupers and to the people who are not working. Now, you might imagine this as a big procession moving down a medieval street. You get everybody ordered by ranks, going slowly down through gradations as you reduce in honor and quality until you get the very last person. You also might imagine this as the seats in a church. You get the respectable members of community up at the very front, and then as you go further and further away from the pulpit, your respectability slowly decreases. Important to note here that this is an individualistic model. There are no classes here. There's no big groupings, no big division between any particular person. Just a kind of, we're all in this together mess. The second big thing is the three class model, that there's an upper class, a middle class, and a lower class. This is probably the one that is most familiar to us today. The problem, of course, is who to define as the upper class and the lower class and the middle class. The final model is the two-class model, and I can present this as us against them. And you can see this mobilized even today. We get proud American workers against invidious foreigners. We get the 99% against the 1%. This two-class model sees the fundamental aspect of politics being a zero-sum game between true groups of people, us and them. This is the old classic Marxist idea, that you have the working class versus the bourgeois. Now what we see through these times, according to Canadine, is that all three of these models of inequality are always present from the 18th to the 20th centuries, but they get different emphases and get explained in different language. The big change here is during the French Revolution, where Britain's getting structurally changed because of the Industrial Revolution, and then they look across the water and new ways of discussing politics based on liberty and reason and all that blah 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 lead to massive political chaos. They lead to people losing their heads on guillotines. This freaks people out and also enlivens a lot of people. It gives a lot of people hope for a new way of organizing politics. And in this, these three models of hierarchy get re-energized. They get politicized in ways that weren't politicized before. Some people saw things as an us-against-them model. Some took to smashing machines because they considered that the poor workers were being dominated by the evil industrialists. Other people saw it more as the middle classes and the lower classes against the old corruption, or what is called the thing, or it, this uh, uh, invidious, parasitic pol political morass where you get rentiers and the great pool of money all just stealing the taxes of the people who actually worked. Here, the division is between those who are taxed and those who tax. Other people see it as a three-stage model and emphasize that the big change that is happening between 1790 and 1840 is the rise of the middle classes. They point to a new politics based on people talking in public assemblies and reading newspapers and living in suburbs and buying stuff, and they see the political changes of the 1830s and 40s, like the Great Reform Act and the Anti-Cornwall League, 
as victories of this new middle class. And then there remain people who saw things as a hierarchy, that everybody is united in a great procession, all in it together, all working despite their differences in status for the great common cause. And I want to point out, these are not the opinions of historians that we're talking about, they're opinions of the people at the time. And I am agnostic about what I think about this view. I don't know enough about class in the 19th century to make a claim about what I think happens. But I think that today we are facing a similar confusion about what the worlds of work and politics mean, about who belongs to particular groups, about what the meaning of what we do actually is, as the ways that we consume become more dematerialized, as we consume more on Facebook and Amazon than we do in person, as the ways that we work become dematerialized, as we work on computer screens and via Skype instead of on offices, as the very desserts of what work is start to change, as an increasingly large number of people are denied work that is honorable and remunerative, I think that we're facing a similar kind of crisis in politics. We're flinging a lot of notions at what politics is right now. Racism, domination, fascism, communism, socialism, and we're hoping that those old labels stick. But they're not sticking. What is clear is that the new ways of politics and the new ways of working are radically new, but nobody's clear about what it actually means. Nobody has been able to find convincing stories for what's happening. And I want to just suggest that as we do this, we can take a page out of history. We can look at the experience of history to maybe make this new political instability better than the old political instability. According to some scholars, the biggest failure of the working class movement in the 19th century was their failure to understand that workers, women, and children were all in it together, that they all made up part of a wider economy that was deeply interrelated. They fell back instead on parochialism, on just fighting for what they needed at the time. Men wanted women out of work so that they could make more money. Men wanted a reduction in working hours so that they could spend more time at leisure. But in making these claims, they failed to connect their well-being with the well-being of the people around them. They failed to include women's work in their understanding of what work was. They failed to understand how the work that they did was deeply wrapped up in international commodities trades that was deeply connected with unequal forms of labor like slavery and sharecropping. They failed as well to make connections with other forms of work that were not similar to theirs. They failed to make a big tent and instead sold their movement for simple and incremental improvements. Thanks very much for listening to us today. I hope you enjoyed it. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate us, review us on iTunes, check out the website at historian.live, tell your friends, send me an email, do something like that. All of your feedback means great things to me because I'm just sitting here every day reading and then talking into a microphone. I'm a little lonely. Thanks very much, guys, and I'll see you tomorrow.